0: This is a talk that was prepared for a group at the Hospital de Pediatria Garahan in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I would like to thank Irene Rujas from the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid, who very kindly prepared a Spanish version of the PowerPoint slides. In this talk, I'm going to focus on specific language impairment, which is diagnosed in a child when language doesn't follow the normal developmental course for no obvious reason. So you would typically exclude children where they had language difficulties associated with a hearing loss, with physical abnormality, or with acquired brain damage. And typically children with SLI will be developing normally in other areas, so they may have normal motor milestones, normal self-help skills, and normal nonverbal abilities. I'm going to talk about a fictional child called Jim who comes along to the clinic and people are complaining that he doesn't seem to understand what people say. Both his parents and his teachers feel he isn't always taking in what they say to him. And what I want to do is to consider how one might go about the assessment of a child in a case like this. The point I want to stress is that we should think of assessment as a kind of hypothesis testing. So often as people just administer some sort of existing standard battery and look at the results of that, now standard batteries can be extremely useful for evaluating the severity of a child's problems, particularly if you have uh, an assessment battery where there are local norms, so you have some idea of what's typical at different ages. This is all very helpful but it may not be enough to really pinpoint the nature of a child's problems and it may not be all that easy then to think of intervention goals relating to what you found out on the assessment and of course in many countries there just aren't all that many good standardized tests available and so one has to be really creative i think it's still possible though to look at assessment and to think more like a detective uh, try and think about why might the child have the problems that they're presenting with and eliminate different sorts of explanations until you arrive at a most plausible one and the key point is that many language assessments do give you at the end of the day some assessment of receptive language level or expressive language level but that really is just the start of the assessment process because both language comprehension and language expression are really complicated. There's many, many steps involved in both of them. and What's important to try and do is to pinpoint where the difficulty lies. Just very broadly, one could say you can distinguish between children who may have trouble just decoding speech sounds, children who have trouble recognising words children who have trouble remembering or interpreting sequences of words and others who might have difficulty using contextual cues to work out what's being said and I'll break down each of these and give you some examples of the sorts of things you can do to really identify problems at the different levels but remember that even this sort of four-stage scenario that I've put here is a gross oversimplification language is massively complex and we need to keep that in mind so one of the first things that you need to do if you see a child with comprehension difficulties is to check is there any hearing loss and for this you need an audiological assessment and that may discover a sensory neural hearing loss some children have comprehension problems because they have particular difficulties hearing for example just the high frequencies and it's not so obvious when you're just interacting with the child that there is a hearing loss but it's nevertheless sufficient to impair language development much more commonly you find that there are many children who do have some degree of middle ear disease uh, so they may have a fluctuating hearing loss associated with otitis media and in general these sorts of hearing loss are not usually sufficient to cause significant language problems A lot of research was done back in the 1970s, 1980s on this topic because it was thought that maybe otitis media was a major cause of children's language problems. But I think it's true to say that most of the evidence suggests that although otitis media may play a role in language difficulties, it's very unlikely to be the major cause. So if you find a child has got some level of conductive hearing loss, my recommendation would be that you shouldn't just stop there, but you should continue to try and explore reasons for the comprehension failure although obviously you'd want to also ensure that the hearing loss was adequately treated and managed by an audiologist. The next step that is often recommended is that you should get an assessment of nonverbal ability um, to identify whether the child's general developmental level is within normal limits and the slide here shows you just a uh, first example from Raven's Coloured Matrices which is a popular test for assessing children's ability to reason when no language is involved so what they have to do is to find the slide that fits in the gap there from the pictures underneath if you find that nonverbal ability is within normal limits then that's gives you a very clear indication that the child's problems don't seem to be caused by anything that's also depressing general developmental level. But I would say even if you find a child has got low nonverbal ability in association with a comprehension problem, you should still go on to try and evaluate the nature of that comprehension problem. And the only additional thing to bear in mind is that if they have poor nonverbal skills, this may very well affect how they approach language comprehension tests. They may have poor attention or poor ability to select items from an array and so on. But I think we still need to get to the bottom of the nature of the comprehension problem and low nonverbal ability isn't an adequate explanation for poor comprehension. So we're going to proceed onwards in our assessment. Now, the next thing I would suggest that you might like to consider is whether the child has problems in producing speech sounds. Do they have a full repertoire of speech sounds for the language that they're learning? This is really a kind of shortcut, because if the child is able to produce the whole range of speech sounds accurately, I think we can confidently assume that they can perceive those speech sounds also and that saves us uh, a step that we otherwise might go through in assessment. But many young children don't produce the full range of speech sounds and then it's important to assess whether this is just a problem with output, speech output, or whether they're actually having some difficulty perceiving speech sounds as well. Now, assessment of speech discrimination is something that sounds as if it should be not too difficult to do, but with children it's really quite a minefield. It's really very difficult to get accurate information on whether the child can tell different sounds apart. A typical method that may be be adopted is to give the child a series of nonsense words, just monosyllabic uh, non-words differing by one feature. So you might present zob, zog, or miv, niv. And then the child for each pair has to tell you whether those two non-words were the same or whether they were different. So conceptually, that's really quite a simple task, just picking up whether two things are the same or different. But the difficulty is that it's hard for children to maintain concentration on a task like that over many trials. And you do tend to need to give quite a lot of trials before you can be confident as to whether the child can tell all the sounds apart that you're interested in. In addition, some children don't understand the concept of same and different in this sort of context. Some of them may say that everything is the same or everything is different. And finally, this sort of test can be quite hard to interpret unless you have some norms. You need to know what's typical uh, for children who don't have any speech and language problems at different ages. And it's quite likely that even a child who seems to be developing quite normally won't get all items right on a test like this for the co- these reasons problems with attention and problems with concentration and so on. So, there have been various methods developed to try and get tests that are more suitable for young children to look at speech discrimination. One approach involves using real words rather than nonsense words because if you use real words, you can make the task more interesting for children. You can use pictures, for example. This is not a real test item here that I'm showing you, but it's similar to the sorts of pictures that are used, for example, in the Goldman fristoe Woodcock Auditory Discrimination Test, where the child is presented with a series of items, each of which has four pictures, and the names of the items are quite confusable. They differ just by one sound. So in this example, we have a picture showing wake, lake, rake, and cake and the child may be asked to point to rake. There is however a limitation of this type of approach that first of all the child does need to be familiar with the words and although it's possible to familiarize them at the start of the test by showing them the pictures and naming them it's clearly problematic if the child may not remember the names and is not already aware of what the pictures depict. In addition some pictures are much clearer than others simply because some items are much easier to show in a picture than others typically nouns are easier to depict than verbs and so this picture of wake might confuse some children who might think it's just a picture of a boy and as before we also have to be concerned about the child's attention the ability to listen to what you say and relate it scan the array of pictures and find the right one and finally a test like this is not particularly easy to do if you want to test particular contrast between sounds so you might have a child who confuses t and d but it's quite hard in many languages to find sets of words that are distinguished just on that basis and that are easy to picture and that will be known to children this sort of test is also quite hard to interpret again unless you have normative data unless you know what's typical for a child of the age of four or five or whatever. There's a rather different type of assessment that was suggested by John Locke many years ago in the 1980s which I have found to be quite useful because it overcomes quite a few of the problems of other methods. What you do is you present the child with just a picture of a single familiar item like a spade and then you can test their ability to hear the differences between sounds by seeing whether they can identify the correct name so you may say is it a spade but you could also say is it a spade so the de-g contrast is is tested that way this has certain advantages it means you can tailor the test to the child and you can test the ability to discriminate the contrast that the child actually has trouble producing And you can make sure that you are only using familiar words that are in the child's vocabulary. The main disadvantages are again that there won't be normative data if you have a test that's actually personalised to the child like this. And you need to beware that some children may say yes or indeed no to virtually everything in a rather indiscriminate fashion but overall um, this method does seem to have certain advantages over others and it's one that we have used in studies that we have done just to give you an example uh, back in 1992 together with my student Judith Bird we did a study using this method on children who had phonological impairments but in fact these children all had normal language comprehension so they had purely expressive phonological impairments and they were aged five to six years old and had been referred to a speech and language therapist. And what we were able to do is to devise a set of items that allowed us to see, first of all, did the child confuse the sounds that they themselves in production would make errors on uh, and contrast those items with items where the child never made that mistake. So, for example, if we had a child who confused s and f, then we could show them this picture of a son and see can they respond correctly when we say is it a son? But then we could also try is it a shun? And if the child never themselves confused s and sh, we would expect they should be able to correctly reject shun as a label. But we could also try is it a fun? because this child does confuse s and f". so this method allows us to really see are they able to tell apart the sounds that in their own production they confuse and the results were quite interesting out of the 14 children that we saw seven really didn't make mistakes they performed at a near ceiling level showing that although they produced these contrasts with errors their ability to perceive them was fine Then there were four children who did make errors but they were almost always on the contrast, they could not produce accurately. So that suggested that the reason they didn't produce the sounds accurately was because they didn't necessarily hear the differences between sounds. There were a further three children though who made errors on all contrast types including items uh, that they never themselves confused in their production. And that sort of pattern makes you start to think that this is a child who perhaps just hasn't understood what the task is, or who is rather inattentive, uh, rather than a, and, and that the test is in this case not necessarily proving to be a very good way of assessing their discrimination. So using methods like this, we can check out a child's ability to discriminate speech, and if we find that there are problems with speech discrimination there are plenty of possibilities for intervention to focus on training the child to both produce and perceive distinctions between speech sounds if on the other hand we find that there's no difficulty we want to look at other aspects of language comprehension i've spoken so far about the need to check that the child has normal hearing, which is really just a test of whether the child can detect different sorts of sounds. Then I've gone on to talk about speech discrimination, the ability to tell apart and distinguish different sounds, for instance, the distinction between D and G. But there's another step that's very important in speech perception, which is the ability to identify phonemes, to recognise incoming speech and break it up and recognize members of particular categories of speech sound. And one can draw a parallel with what you have happening when you do a test of vision. On the one hand, there's the ability, can you actually just see things or are you blind? If you can see that there are things, can you tell things apart? And that's typically what's assessed in the sort of letter chart that many of us are familiar with, where you have lots of letters that look rather similar and you have to recognize which is an H and which is an N. But then there's the identification stage where you're really required to tell that three different letter shapes may all be examples of the same letter, although they're physically different. And this last step is rather similar to what I'm suggesting you need to do to test phoneme identification, because a particular phoneme may be quite different acoustically from one occasion to the next, But to be competent in speech comprehension, you have to be able to recognize members of a category. So speech perception does involve categorizing as well as discriminating sounds. And here is a spectrogram that illustrates very nicely the problem that this involves and how this is not a simple task by any manner of means. So here we have a spectrograph that shows you um, the acoustic characteristics of the sounds heed, hid, head, had, hod, hoard, hood, hood and hood. And what you can see is that there's no bit of the sound that is constant at the beginning or the end of that spectrograph. Spectrograph is showing you time along the bottom x-axis frequency of the sound up at the y-axis and then the intensity of the sound is shown by the darkness of the trace. But the beginnings of these eight sounds are really looking very different in terms of the bands of frequency energy here and the ends also quite different even though they all begin with huh and end in duh. So what you're having to do when you actually decode speech is to identify that these are uh, common sounds even though acoustically they're very different because the vowel will have a dramatic impact on um, it, its impact spreads right through the consonants that proceed and follow it. The sort of task that we use to assess this uh, kind of ability um, is a classic phonemic awareness task of a rather simple kind where the child actually has to explicitly identify things that sound similar. So we may have a puppet, and we could say that he's called Wug. He likes things that sound like his name. And then we ask the child to choose one of these four things, the cake, the jug, the leaf, or the boat. And we show them the pictures so they don't have to remember anything. And we name the items so that if there's any doubt, uh, it's quite clear what the names are. And you would think this seems like a very trivially easy task to pick out jug and wug as the two that sound similar. But in fact, for young children who haven't yet learned to read, this is often a very difficult task. And they don't really understand what you're trying to ask them. Here's just another example of the same type of task where you may say that Sam likes things that sound like the start of his name and again you can present the child with the ball, the fan, the sun or the car and see can they pick out the sun as the one that also begins with s. Again it seems very very easy to competent adults but it's far from easy to many children who don't really break up these words into their component sounds and therefore have difficulty judging which are alike. Now in that study that I mentioned that I did with Judith Bird on children with expressive phonological impairments we did use this sort of phonemic awareness task as well as the John Locke discrimination task and as I mentioned earlier on the Locke task only a subset of children were impaired at telling sounds apart but what was interesting in this study is that all these children with expressive phonological impairments had difficulties with this phonemic awareness type of task indicating that it's a really higher, more abstract level of speech processing that you're testing when you require them to identify sounds that are the same. And if you find problems with phonemic awareness, there is plenty of materials now available for training this skill in children. It's widely recognised that it's an important skill uh, for vocabulary development, but also for learning to read where children are having to relate letters and sounds together so this is important to assess to see whether it's something that really needs intervention and problems with phonemic awareness are really surprisingly common as I showed you with the Bird and Bishop study we were there looking at children who just had expressive phonological impairments and we were able to show that they were usually linked to difficulties in doing this sort of phonemic constancy judgment across different word contexts. But it's also been found in language impaired children who don't have phonological problems that quite often they have trouble with phonemic awareness and also in children who have literacy problems. And in fact, Alan Cammy and Hugh Katz in the United States did some very nice studies looking uh, directly at a comparison of children with reading difficulties and language difficulties and showing that this was a common feature in many children the next step that i suggest needs looking at is assessment of phonological short-term memory and this has been recognized as a really important skill for children with language problems which is often deficient gather colon badly uh, back in the nineteen nineties Did a study where they simply asked children to repeat nonsense words that varied in length. So they had them all sorts of lengths from two syllables, three syllables, four syllables, and five syllables. And in their test, these are really quite word-like. They were in fact non-words made by changing a sound or two in a real word. So in English we have hampent, doppelate, confranchially, pristeractional. And this sort of test has been shown to be so sensitive to children with language impairments that it's really been developed in different versions um, in other languages. And there is here a reference I've put here for a a Spanish non-word repetition test that has recently been described in the literature. And here are just some illustrative results from a study that we did comparing children who had language impairments with some well-matched control children of similar non-verbal ability and similar age and what you can see up the y-axis is the number of items correct out of five and you can see that when there's only two syllable non-words most children will get these right and there's very few errors at all but as the number of syllables increases along the x-axis what you see is that the language impaired children make disproportionate numbers of errors on this sort of task so that they seem to have real problems once you get to four or five syllable non-words and one of the arguments that was made by gather and Badley was that this is a memory deficit because if it was just a problem in perceiving or producing nonsense words you would actually see problems at two-syllable non-words as well as the longer ones, but it seems that the difficulties increase as the amount of material to be remembered increases. Now, as I've mentioned, problems with phonological short-term memory are actually very common, but there's a real difficulty if you discover such problems as to what you do next. There's very little literature on how you should intervene with children who have weak phonological short-term memory. Uh, there's a very nice paper by Maggie Vance in this book I referenced here um, looking at the evidence for short-term memory problems in children with language impairments and describing therapeutic approaches. But I think in general most therapists would take the view that what you should do if you find such problems is adapt your behavior with the child to make sure that they get ample repetition so that they can get a chance to learn things if they don't necessarily remember them the first time they hear them and they may also benefit from visual support that is don't just rely on talking to the child but use pictures and maybe if they can read written language to support what it is you're trying to teach them because this is a real difficulty for many children that can limit their ability to learn new vocabulary and to understand what's being said to them. The next step, I suggest, is that you need to look at whether the child can relate the incoming speech to what they have in their own mental lexicon. So this is really a vocabulary test. Do you recognize a sequence of sounds as forming a meaningful word? And this is just a sample item, which is why it has sample written on it from the Peabody Picture vocabulary test. This is a very well-known test and available, I think, in many languages. It's a very simple item where you might just ask the child to point to the picture of sleeping. But it's a format that has been used to test vocabulary right through from very simple, concrete verbs and nouns up to much more abstract concepts. And it's very useful for investigating whether a child who is not perhaps producing much language, whether they're actually understanding what is said to them and how many words they know and whether that's normal for age level and limitations in receptive vocabulary are often hidden disabilities that is you may not really be aware of how limited the child's vocabulary is unless you test them using something like that peabody test here's just an illustrative example um, published in 2006 in the states where a study was done looking at children who were enrolled in language therapy ranging from three years to six years of age. And in pretty well all those age groups, what you can see is that the children with specific language impairment are performing below the level of the control children. Um, Their deficits are not necessarily severe, but they simply do know fewer words than other children of the same age. So again, we may say, well, if you find limited vocabulary, what can you do? This is an area where I think there are quite a lot of possibilities for intervention. One possibility that has been explored in the University of York by my colleague Maggie Snowling and her colleagues is to train teaching assistants to work with children aged about four years in school on vocabulary development. And they've developed some nice training materials that can be administered by a classroom assistant in small groups of children and they've shown that this can be effective in improving children's vocabulary level and they're really interested to also see does that have beneficial effects then when the children come to learn to read because one of the points they stress is that if you don't have good vocabulary then it can be quite hard when you come to learn to read you may not recognize the words in your books we're also interested in vocabulary learning from the point of view of trying to look at the process as it occurs in real time how a child actually learns the meaning of a novel word that they've never heard before i'm going to tell you a little bit about a study that we're currently just analyzing and writing up that's been going on in oxford for the past two or three years this study's been carried out in oxford by my research team Dr. Julie Hsu is particularly interested in language, language learning aspects of the study and the other members of the team, Annika Holden, Georgina Holt and Mervyn Hardiman have been f- involved in gathering data and looking at different aspects of children's language and other learning. For this study we recruited 28 children who had specific language impairment who were aged from 7 to 11 years and we compared them with two groups of typically developing children the first group were matched in age and a general ability nonverbal ability and the second group were matched in terms of their language level on a sentence comprehension task so these were younger typically developing children and we wanted to see whether children with sli were just immature in their language learning so like younger typical children or whether there was something particularly unusual about their inability to learn new vocabulary. In this experiment we tried to train children to learn eight novel words and in fact we used real words that were animals with really unusual names like dugong and aye-aye because we felt it would be nice for the children to come away having learned something meaningful rather than just nonsense words. And these words were presented repeatedly to the children in a game format where what they heard was one of the names spoken and then they would see four of these pictures and have to select the right one uh, that matched what they heard and when they got it right something exciting happened the picture went into the robot's stomach and things jumped up and down on the screen. And the children were presented this several days in succession. Um, in order to see how their learning progressed. They were also given all eight items right at the start. They were told the names of the items before the training began. The pattern of learning that we saw was very similar for children with SLI who are shown in red here and for the younger language age match controls shown in blue. And the main difference between the three groups, including the chronological age match controls as well, was simply that the SLI children and the younger children started at a lower point. But in terms of the rate of learning, as you can see here, all groups did learn both within a day across the three blocks of presentation, and then also they retained information from one day to the next and learned more and more. And so the main limitation for children with SLI was actually how much they took in at that initial presentation when we just told them the names of the eight animals, but afterwards when they were given repeated feedback, they did learn, and this is really quite encouraging. It's not that they're forgetting things once they have learned them, it's rather that they are just poor at immediately forming a representation when they hear a novel sequence of speech sounds. I want to move on now to consider sentence comprehension child's ability to make sense of sequences of words and this is something i've worked on for many years in fact it was the topic of my phd thesis Uh, trying to understand how far children could use information about how words went together and things like little grammatical endings to work out how that affected the meaning of a sentence and the sort of thing that um, I've used is uh, the test for reception of grammar uses items like the one shown here where you have a sentence that's spoken to the child such as the elephant is pushed by the boy and the child has to find the sentence that matches what you say And we keep vocabulary very, very simple in Trog because we don't want children to make mistakes just because they don't know what the words mean. And really it's a case of just identifying the sentence that depicts what is said when the distractors are deliberately selected to show either sentences that show the same words but in a different order or where one of the words has changed. And we're quite interested not just in whether children get this right or not, but if they make mistakes, what errors do they make? So many children will always, uh, if they make errors, they'll always be on the items where word order is crucial, so they'll make confusion between picture two and picture four, and in both of those pictures we have a boy, we have pushing and an elephant, but they won't be so likely to select the other pictures if children do select one or three for this sort of sentence it suggests they're only taking in maybe one or two words in a sentence and not processing the whole thing a different type of problem the item on the right shows you a different kind of trog item with a more complicated construction the pencil on the shoe is blue and here you can see word order is absolutely critical And in fact, if you just related each word to the nearest word, you'd think it would be the shoe that's blue rather than the pencil. So these are harder items that occur later in the test where you don't any longer have these lexical distractors where one of the words is different. Everything is just determined by word order and you can see whether children are able to interpret the sequence of words to get to the right answer. This sort of item is very challenging for many children with language difficulties now what the early research I did on uh, the test reception of grammar found was that many children with specific language impairment do poorly on this kind of sentence comprehension tests and they seem to have particular difficulties with sentences where word order was used to convey meaning and so I was interested to see whether this is something that you can train so in the same study where we looked at vocabulary training we also devised a sentence comprehension training task that was really very simple in that we only used sentences with two nouns and a preposition joining them, so things like the apple is after the horse and the child would hear the sentence and then had to move these items that are shown on the right hand side so that they had the correct positions on the train so if they clicked on the horse and then the apple they would move the items into the correct position. And we had some items that were testing uh, before and after. And then we had another set of training items testing above and below. Uh, But all the sentences were of this very, very simple kind. If the child couldn't remember the sentence, they could press this button called talk and hear it again. And if they wanted help, they could press help, and they would actually be shown the correct sequence and as with our other games if you got it right and you did so reasonably quickly exciting things would happen with Bart Simpson and the football and again the results are shown with the three groups of children the SLI in red the language age match control in blue and the chronological age match control in green the chronological age match control children really made very few errors at all they mostly got these right and just had the odd lapses of concentration. So there was no real training effect for them. The SLI and language age match control children, however, uh, did show some training effect, but what was interesting with both groups was that they didn't ever get as good at this task as the chronological age match control children, even though this is a very, very simple task. You're really just being trained to recognize a pair of matched prepositions such as before and after and so we were intrigued by the fact that they don't ever seem to get to the automatic and consistent understanding of these prepositions uh, that we might have expected for a child of this age but in this regard they were actually like younger typically developing children So if you find a child does have trouble with these sorts of constructions, is there anything that you can do to intervene? Um, well, our study suggested that training will get you so far, but not really to a state of really automatic, fluent comprehension. Um, but you can do more than we did. So Susan Ebbles, who's a specialist speech and language therapist at Moorehouse School in Surrey, um, has developed a scheme whereby you use uh, shape and colour as visual support to make very explicit the relationships between different parts of speech and to show children how, for example, active and passive constructions relate to one another. And she's done some nice training studies showing that this can improve children's ability to understand these types of construction. But I've noted here that even with very intensive training on these particular constructions, children still usually find it hard. They don't sort of just automatically grasp the meaning of these sentences and tend to have to think it through and and reason it out. Uh, And some of them do still have problems despite quite intensive training. And I think this fits with the literature that suggests that training of sentence comprehension is really a a sticking point for many children with speech and language problems. So if you find that a child has got poor sentence comprehension, yes, there are things in the literature that you can try, but I think just be aware that this is something that's quite difficult to train. And it may be also important not just to try and fix a problem of this kind, but to just make others aware that the problem exists, so that if the child doesn't always seem to understand what's said to them, it might need repeating, it might need explaining in a different way. Uh, and that there may be limitations that both parents and teachers are not fully aware of. For the last part of the talk, I want to move to the next step, the last step in that initial diagram I had of processes in comprehension to emphasise the importance of taking the context of language into account when trying to understand what somebody means. Sometimes it's easy to think of language understanding as if it's just mapping words onto meanings. So if I say to you, the fish is on the table, you can form a little picture in your head representing that proposition of here's a fish, here's a table. The relationship between them is on, the preposition on. But in practice, when language is used in everyday life, it doesn't really work that way. There's always a process of having to select a meaning from a range of possible meanings of what might have been said and I'll give you some examples of what I mean let's just take that sentence the fish is on the table if you and I were enjoying um, a pre-dinner drink and my husband came in and said the fish is on the table we would make certain assumptions we would assume not that there was a live fish on a wooden table like in the previous slide but that he would be talking about a meal, the uh, a cooked fish, and there would be a plate, which he hadn't mentioned, but we would assume would be there. So in that regard, we're integrating words with context. We are expecting that we're going to get a meal, and so when he mentions fish, we think of the meal that we're about to enjoy. But we need to go a step further than that. We need to also think, why has he come in and said this to us? Is it because we're sitting there drinking, and he actually wants us to move to the table and come and eat this delicious fish that he's cooked. So we're doing a lot more than just listening to the words, we are taking the words as cues to why certain things have been said. And I've argued that when we talk of children having pragmatic problems we can usually describe them in this way as problems that arise because context hasn't been taken into account and the child has just responded very directly to the particular words that were spoken without really relating them to anything else. The context may just be the prior conversation. So here's an example from some conversation I had with a child about holidays, and the child had told me that they'd been to Blackpool for their holiday, and they'd been to France. So I said, how did you get to Blackpool? And the child said, in the car. And then I said, and what about when you went to France? And the child said, it was hot. Now you can see that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say about the holiday in France, except that it surprised me because I was expecting the child to say that they'd been on the plane or on the ferry to get to France because we'd just talked about transport. And you expect topics to really stay the same in a conversation unless there's an explicit flagging up of a change another aspect of contact text is the nonverbal cues that somebody gives when they're speaking and in fact these are often much more important than the verbal cues you can tell from somebody's nonverbal cues whether they're joking whether they're serious whether they're upset and so on so here's an example where a child completely failed to use the nonverbal signals that a therapist was sending him when she said well if we don't get this done today we'll just have to cancel christmas This really upset this child who thought he'd never get any presents if Christmas was cancelled and didn't realise that this was a little jokey thing that the therapist had said. In fact, therapists who work a lot with children with language problems, I think, rapidly learn that it's not a good idea to make verbal jokes because children may really take them very literally. The other thing that becomes very obvious when you work with children who have these kinds of problems is just how ambiguous many words in the language are. And they have multiple meanings, and we are always having to select the correct meaning. And we do this so effortlessly that we don't realize quite often how ambiguous things are. So there's a therapist who told me that after a long session of therapy with a child, she just said, can you stand to do some more? Meaning, can you bear to do some more? but the child's response was to stand up, thinking she literally meant, can you stand up? So here again is an example where a word with multiple meanings is understood in the wrong way, in part because the child just hasn't taken on board the context in which this was said. In my book Uncommon Understanding, I describe pragmatic problems that can arise for a host of different reasons but I saw all of them as having to do with needing to take into account context in interpreting what was said to you so I've already mentioned you need the linguistic context what have we been talking about you tend to relate what's being said now to what was said previously there's also prosodic information, so tone of voice and stress. These can give important cues both to the attentional focus of an utterance and also to the affect, the emotional state of the speaker. Then there's the nonverbal context, the situation in which something is said and your general knowledge of what's likely to be said. These things are really important often for disambiguating ambiguous words. And then finally, I've put here social cognition, awareness of what somebody else is likely to be thinking. What does the other person know? Uh, What do they expect from you? This affects how you interpret what they've just said. And all of these things are aspects of comprehension that for some children pose real problems. These aspects of comprehension can be quite difficult to assess precisely because context is important They may not be apparent in a standardized test situation where the child has a lot of cues as to what is expected of them. So if you're asking the child to point to pictures, then life is really quite easy. They know what the options are. Pragmatic problems become much more evident in open-ended situations, such as conversation, when there aren't the cues available to guide the child as to what is expected. I've tried to develop various ways of assessing these types of pragmatic problems through formal assessments but I've actually found probably the most useful approach is to ask people who know the child well to rate occurrences of particular types of behavior and for that purpose I've developed the children's communication checklist which is designed to be completed by parents and where we do have normative data and you can ask about particular behaviors some of which represent difficulties some of them represent strengths and the respondent is simply asked to rate how commonly they observe the child performing that behavior so here's just a single item from the CCC2 uh, that comes from a scale with several items all of which look at the child's ability to use context so the adult who's completing the checklist reads this description ...that the child gets confused when a word is used with a different meaning from usual. For instance, might fail to understand if an unfriendly person was described as cold... ...and would assume they were shivering. And then the person responding simply has to say, does that happen several times a day? Have they never seen the child do this? And you can get a quantitative sense of how common this kind of misinterpretation is and then we can add together different items testing this kind of skill to get a sense of whether problems with use of context characterize this child. Now one reason why I developed the checklist was because I became increasingly aware that these pragmatic impairments can be quite important and really affect the child's ability to interact with others but they're missed by most standard psychometric tests and language instruments. You can get an impression of these sorts of problems if you do just have a relatively unstructured conversation with the child, but it's really quite difficult to know how the child will behave in different contexts. So we certainly have seen children who are fine if they're interacting with an adult who's quite supportive in structuring the conversation for the child, but is much less competent if interacting in the playground with other children. So, this checklist report by a teacher or a parent can be quite valuable. If you do find that the child has got problems with pragmatics and with this contextual use of information, what can you do? Well, there's very little published on appropriate sorts of intervention for these types of problems, but I've referred here on this slide to a website. This is information taken from the website of Catherine Adams for the University of Manchester who has been evaluating an intervention programme that's designed to work with children who have exactly this type of problem and has a range of different behaviours which it aims to train in children who are affected. So that is still very much under development but I've put up the reference here and it's a good starting point if you're interested in trying to see and get ideas of the sorts of things you can do to try and overcome problems of that kind. Well, I hope you found it useful to be given this kind of structure to think about how one might go about assessing comprehension problems in children. As I said at the outset, I regard this as a very much uh, a hypothesis testing procedure where you are like a detective. You need to be quite ingenious in trying to think why is the child doing what they're doing? What aspect of language is it that's causing obstacles? And we're very much still in the days where there's a lot to be discovered, and certainly we need to know a lot more about effective ways of intervening with children. We're very much pioneers setting out into unknown territory. But I think that things are moving ahead, and we're very keen. um, Myself and a group of colleagues have been trying to ensure that at least there's greater awareness that children can have problems of this kind, And we recently, last month, started a campaign on a YouTube channel to try and improve the awareness of specific language impairment amongst the general public and other professionals. So our campaign is raising awareness of language learning impairments. And I wanted to show you this slide because one of us is Gina Conti-Ramsden, who is a native Peruvian, and she's done a very nice little introductory piece on what is SLI in Spanish which I think may be of particular interest to the audience in Argentina. Thank you very much for listening.